0: the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, We're the ones that were
1: denied to live in certain communities. Um, We've been hung. We've been shot. Los Angeles Clippers head coach Doc Rivers reacts emotionally to the shooting of Jacob Blake, who is black, by a white police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Blake is hit by seven bullets in the back.
0: Why we keep loving this country And this country does not love his back.
1: The shooting sparks fear, anger, protests, and walkouts in the professional sports world. Coming up, we talk with New York Times Sports of the Times columnist Kurt Streeter, who writes, the demand for justice from black athletes and their allies sets a new bar for protests in sports.
0: I would expect now that this has happened that games have actually been canceled on a mass level. I wouldn't be surprised if this now spreads. When, if something more happens and it's bound to, well, are there going to be more, more postponements? Well, Would players walk entirely from seasons while well, this spread to the NFL? This is Life on the Marches. I was born in the Central
2: District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play Flyers Up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to us. and eventually the Kenyans didn't have
1: much... Welcome to Life in the Margins. I'm Enrique S. Cerna. And I'm Marcus Harrison Green. Marcus, yet another shooting involving an African-American man. Jacob Blake takes seven shots to the back from a white police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin, protests, not only in the streets of Kenosha, but in the pro sports world, which which reacts really strongly. Obviously, you have the NBA playoffs going on, large contingent of African-American players, also the WNBA active in their season right now. And now it's not just basketball where you have a lot of African-American players, but throughout sports, people are saying, we have a voice. We're going to speak out.
2: Yes, and the MLB as well. Uh, at a recent game, it took the players took forty two seconds of silence, to commemorate, you know, Jackie Robinson, the first African American player to ever play in the major leagues. So yes, this is wide ranging, as you alluded to, Enrique. And I have to say, uh, you know, in the past we've had individuals who brave individuals, I, I might add, who individually have done and taken actions. And, and many times they were black balls, whether it was John Carlos and Tommy Smith at the 1968 Olympics, most recently, obviously Colin Kaepernick in the NFL. But now you have entire sports leagues, uh, black players, yes, but also some white players in, in allyship uh, with these players. So I got to ask you, um, what does this time you know, mean to you, especially, you know, you were around when Muhammad Ali was doing his thing and, and right. John Carlos and Tommy Smith were doing their thing. So, I mean, you put this into perspective for some of our younger listeners.
1: Well, I think you you hit on it. And the fact that uh, when Muhammad Ali said that he would not let himself be drafted because of the Vietnam War and took a stand there, but he also had other prominent athletes at that time come to his support, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar came to his support, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, who's also been very, very vocal in many ways about speaking out against racism in America. They were individuals. They didn't have the whole sport come behind them at that time. So they took a stand and really put themselves on the line in doing that. As you mentioned, there was a Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who put themselves out there at the 1968 Olympics. And individually, they, they paid a price for many, many years. And, and it's interesting to me that Colin Kaepernick has sort of been lost in all of this right now, because really he, he was the voice that, uh, that really stood up or actually knelt down to make a point here now. So this is a definite shift. It's, it's like we've been talking about the protests in the wake of uh, George Floyd and the generational shift that's happened. And people saying, we're not going to deal with this anymore. Racism is a big issue in this country now in the pro sports world. It's not just individuals. It's a large segment of the pro sports world that's saying, we're going to speak out, we have a voice. And and that's one of the big things. A lot of people here are stepping up to speak out in a big voice. I mean, do you think that
2: this current movement of you're seeing players, whether it's WNBA, NBA, even MLB, be much more active in their activism? Do you think it also just tracks with how things have changed generationally? And And I say that in the context of, I remember an interview with Craig Hodges. Uh, for those who don't know, he was a teammate of Michael Jordan on the Bulls for 1991, 1992 championships. In 1991, there were uprisings in Los Angeles you know, that had to do with the Rodney King verdict. Uh, Rodney King was a motorist who was uh, beat savagely by four uh, white police officers. The four white police officers ended up getting off and that you know, sparked uh, outrage obviously across the city. That verdict coincided with game one of the NBA finals and Craig Hodges wanted Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson. He went to them and he said, why don't we boycott the first game? He just sent a message. He said, I'm not talking about the whole series, but let's boycott the first game. And they were like, you must be crazy. Now, fast forward, right, to 29 years, almost 30 years. And here we have NBA players not playing a game. And this isn't just a regular season game. Again, these are the playoffs. I mean, what does that mean to you? What, is, what does that say about how far we've come
1: right now? Well, it's definitely a shift in the fact that uh, the players back then, while they made money and they were important to the game, they probably didn't feel that they had the power to really go against the owners. Michael Jordan is now an owner, <laughs> you know, so he's in a different place now. And I think he's actually played a role as a bit of a liaison, but it's a, it's a generational shift. Where the players are saying that we bring in, a, we make a lot of money, but we make our owners a lot of money. <laughs> and so they are saying we have a voice and we wanna be heard. And they're really challenging the ownership of the teams, which, you know, let's face it, they are. For the most part, white men. Now, interesting you brought up uh, Rodney King during that time because I had an opportunity to talk to uh, Kurt Streeter, who actually with the Los Angeles Times got to know Rodney King well. I interviewed him a while back uh, when he was with the L.A. Times about Uh, The Life and Times of Rodney King, because he did a profile of him. Well, Kurt is now with the New York Times and is their Sports of the Times columnist. We had a chance to sit down and talk about a column that he wrote in the wake of all of this uh, recently with uh, Jacob Blake. And the column is titled The Walkouts, a New High Bar for Protests in Sports is now set. And Kurt really lays out how this change, this generational change, is uh, bringing the voice to the professional athlete and pushing the owners and making the fans also listen to what they have to say. Let's listen to our conversation. So before we get to talking about the sporting world and the reaction to the shooting of Jacob Blake, let's talk about the impact of yet another shooting on Kurt Streeter an African-American man who lives in Seattle though works for the New York Times and just how you feel about all this
0: it uh, it affects you at a at a at the deepest level at a at a bone at a bone deep level every time we see something like this happen because it taps into our deepest fears not only our fears and concerns for ourselves but for loved ones and Cousins and nephews and um, best friends and you know and, and also just just yet another reminder of the struggle that we've we as a people have faced for centuries now. I mean I'm I'm literally about two feet away from me is a uh, well I have a we made a had a genealogy made of my family. I'm I'm biracial, so I've got both black roots and white roots. Right, my 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 dad's black and my my mother, my late mother, is white, but on the black side, I can look back and just literally two feet away from me, I can see the, the first African American, uh, black person uh, born in this country, that's related to me, and her name was Venus. She was a slave uh, born in South Carolina in 1794, and I'm I'm a direct descendant, to to Venus, uh, uh, and it goes back that far on my black side and in the country so it's a it's a heavy it can be a heavy toll but I think we're all also I mean the great thing about it, I think our tradition is that we're you know, there's a way that we're taught to just move on and, and move forward and mar- march on you know as my grandma my late grandmother used to say I, uh, I love I love tapping into that strength the strength of the past so that, that's one of them and I got to say to another thing too is that so there's times when I'm definitely you know I've I'm literally cried and balled up on on my couch about about all of this. In times that I'm very concerned, even living in Seattle, and which is you know, is not is not the South, let's face it. But I'm also, you know, I'm middle class. I am privileged in so many ways, and I'm uh, very aware of my privilege. And I think one of the things that when these things happen, it makes me more determined as a person who has that privilege as a black person with privilege, I'm walled off from some of the things that happen to people who are less fortunate and black, black folks who are less fortunate and they haven't had the, the luck that I've had. And it makes me more determined than ever each time to be sure that I'm doing my part to try to reach, reach out and help. That's just a, that's just an absolute must. And it's a duty. I feel more of a sense of duty every single time something like this happens. Um,
1: You're also a father,
0: and I'm uh, yeah, yeah. How's your boy? My boy is uh, almost t- turning ten. Uh, so Ash, a little Ash, he's going into fourth grade on 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 Zoom for yeah, uh, virtual fourth grade. So very very tough, and you know, me you know, my son is is actually triracial. And my wife is half South Asian and half white. So my son is one quarter black, one quarter South Asian and half white in his if you you know, really look at his genealogy. And he's very he's very light skinned, but with curly hair and some kind of a, a very mixed sort of ambiguous look in a way. Uh and we talk about this a lot in our family. He has sort of the, the privilege of he has Skin tone privilege, in a way, he's not going to be uh, followed uh, in stores like, you know, like I have been. He's not going to be pulled over necessarily by a cops when they, you know, uh, just because of his looks necessarily. Because he's, you know, he just in the old days, if he want, if he wanted to, he could pass, right? Pass for for white or what have you. And we're teaching him about all that history. So he'll have a very interesting and very you know, very different sort of experience than I've had, with different concerns and different issues that he'll have to work out internally. Right. right.
1: By the way, you should note that Ash uh, is named after Arthur Ash. You used to be a college tennis player, and I know that uh, Arthur Ash was one of uh, the people you lucked up to, so... That's where Ash got his name. Well, let's talk about his dad's work. And you have been writing now for the New York Times for what, about two years, a little more than two years? Uh, We're right at about three years, actually, right now. And you were recently named uh, to do a column for them called Sports of the Times. You're scheduled, actually, to start uh, doing that column in September. And now we have um, the incident involving um, Jacob Blake and the shooting that happened there. And your bosses call up and say, hey, you're up. We need to call them. And so you had to get it out and get some perspective on what is happening here. As you were writing this, uh, sure, you got to turn it out quickly, but what's going through your mind? Stress. (laughs) You've been there. I know that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, this is one of those ones that... (laughs) I don't know. I wouldn't say it necessarily writes itself but it's such a such a meaty subject that uh you know I had some definite ideas about it just such a powerful moment in really sports history and really even I mean everything that's been happening it's, it's just uh, full of emotion and full of you know you, you look at it and think wow this could really be history and it, and it all is some some real real history that we're all going to be remembering
1: it's a big deal isn't it
0: yeah yeah, breakthrough moments. Sort of we're at a crossroads here, no no doubt. So when you can write about, you know, issues that are and you're right in that sweet spot, it's a real honor and uh, so I got up early uh, yesterday morning and and pounded this out. I'd been I you know, watching this week. I'd been really struck by, you know, toggling between the the Republican National Convention and how uh President Trump was being presented and the and the Republican uh, movement uh, was being presented. And then everything that was going on in First Kenosha and then seeing the NBA players, how grease stricken they were early in the week. Uh, and then their decision uh, two days ago to uh, to decide to s- step away from games right during the playoffs in their bubble situation that they're in down in, down in Orlando. And that was led off by the Milwaukee Bucks. Deciding to not play in their playoff game, and then just sort of a cascade of, it just became a cascade where other teams, everybody in the league, the league decided to shut down. When I went to bed on, on that evening, I really I, I was convinced that they were they were not going to play again. Uh, it was, it was and then I started writing the column, uh, and I and you know early in the morning I think it was like five thirty or six in the morning, and I and the news just kept changing and shifting, and they've decided to come back.
1: I'd like you to read the uh, first few graphs of your piece because I think it does set the stage sure
0: it was the silence that spoke the loudest no basketballs pounding on hardwood all games cancelled no baseballs cracking off bats three games cancelled no soccer balls ricocheting down the field five games cancelled no booming aces the western and southern open tennis tournament halted for a day this is what the silence said no more jacob blakes no more george floyd's no more brianna taylor's no more natasha mckenna's no more philando castile's no more michael brown's no more tamir rice's no more eric garners no more alton sterling's no more pain never before has the world of sports spoken so emphatically
1: And that's perhaps the key thing that the sports world, not just basketball players, we're talking about the NBA, the WNBA, the Major League Baseball, soccer, tennis, as you mentioned. There is this sudden feeling of anger, distress, fear, and because in many of those sports the majority of the players are black.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got the NBA, WNBA with like 70, 80% African American or, or you know and uh, black is yeah, you also have players from other other parts of the world. NFL, obviously majority black, dominated by black talent, black superstars. There's a feeling in the air now that you know, I think maybe 10, 15 years ago and even even five years ago the players were just playing and they were just worried about trying to move on and get a get their paychecks and then and then i think see what they could do within oftentimes see what that they could do within their communities for for change but now they're really taking an active role and asserting themselves and standing up and and deep you know much more much much more inclined now like seemingly with every week to, to uh to take, take firm stances, and uh, there, this had never been done before I means the playoffs in the NBA. Granted, it's a different kind of situation because they're down in the artificial environment. So there's no fans. I do wonder how this would, would have been managed. Imagine if fans were showing up for games and only to find out that there, that the, uh, that there would, wouldn't be a playoff game cause it, or, or the baseball games because three games, baseball games canceled. You know, or just any of these sports, and so a couple of them are predominantly white sports, like tennis. But the but the player empowerment is at a level clearly that that uh, we've never seen before, and there's been you know, a pretty long tradition of athlete activism going back for decades. Uh, but oftentimes it would be more individual speaking out, and clearly, the person that I idolized and was lucky enough to know and be helped by Arthur Ashe. You know, Arthur would, did did his. You know, sort of move the dial in his own sort un- understated way, but now it's teams. Now it's the best in the top. You know, m- multitudes of the top players instead of just Muhammad Ali, or just a few. You know, you know. In the '60s, there were there were some. There's Bill Russell, Bill Russell, and oh, several other players. Jim Brown. But, but this is just across the board. And you even had Michael Jordan, who's the, the owner of the Charlotte uh, franchise in, in the NBA. You know, He's sort of like bridging this gap between the, uh, the ownership of the teams and, and the players and speaking out. He's the only black, I believe he's the only black majority owner, but really apparently was very instrumental in sort of uh, some of the moves that have been made behind the scenes now where the players have been pushing the owners In the NBA, to be much more involved than they than they even have been, because they've been sloganeering and saying that they're you know we support Black Lives and all that, but you know where the rubber meets the road. I mean, the people with real power are the owners. When for for real change to happen, I think in this in this instance, the you know older white men with a lot of money and access to power and who have relationships with people like Donald Trump, because many of them are Republicans and strong supporters strong supporters of uh, President Trump, at least several of them are. They are the ones that hold the key to, to real change. I mean, they, they're the. I mean, I think you can do, have the players on one side, but then there has to be the inside game. And and if the players can get those, the they, in the NBA they actually call them governors because they've moved away from the word owner because of the you know fraught history of that word and black folks in America. But if they can get the owners to really start moving things behind the scenes. Then we could really see something out of this. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see. I wrote in the piece that you know this really establishes a a new bar, a, a new high bar uh, for player action. And I would expect now that this has happened, that games have actually been canceled on a mass level. I wouldn't be surprised if this now spreads when if something more happens, and it's bound to. We'll we'll see. I mean, what. Are there going to be more, more postponements? Well, would players walk entirely from seasons well this spread to the NFL? Uh, I, I, uh, college you know, football? Yeah, college football. You know. <laughs> it, the, this, this player unity is definitely now moving into the college football ranks. So.
1: Is that what is making all of this, as I kind of said earlier, a big damn deal?
0: This is a big damn deal, yeah. This is a big damn year. You know, all yeah. When it gets down to the the so called amateur level, where the players are starting to, the players that in, in in who are student athletes, <laughs> and are starting to assert themselves and say, hey, you know, uh, billions are being made off of our backs, and uh, we we want more rights. Uh, we want some money. We are actually workers. We're actually uh, we're providing you free labor that you're making. Tons of money off of, uh, and this is the case in major college football and, and and to some extent basketball. We're starting to see that more, and it's interesting too that all this has happened during the pandemic, where I think people have been able to take the time to kind of step away and rethink things and communicate in new ways, and they're not as busy as maybe before. So you can see college athletes from say Clemson talking to college athletes at Stanford because they have had some time and. So, all of this, and then COVID, there's a lot of concerns on the right. on the player health front with COVID. So they've come out together in many instances and spoken out about that. There's just no way that that would. I just can't it's very hard to see that happening in a, in a normal year or even ten years ago. So I yeah, I'm really going to be fascinated to watch what what happens at in the collegiate level. And I'm speaking as somebody who, you know, much of my college education was paid for by an athletic scholarship. To Cal Berkeley to play in a non-revenue sport, you know I'm the tennis. Yeah, I'm lucky enough. I'm the first, and still I think the only uh, African American to have captained the uh, the tennis team at Berkeley. I uh, saw firsthand, you know, how we were basically living off of the off of the labor of the of the uh, you know the the football players.
1: I was uh, really taken with a couple of things. One was uh, the reaction. From uh, Doc Rivers, who is the head coach of the L.A. Clippers, and how he, the emotion from him in talking about this after the the shooting of Jacob Blake, uh, really putting basketball aside, but talking as a a black man and the fear that he felt, and he also talked about that he just would really like to be an NBA coach, but. He has to worry as a black man about his safety, his son, others in his family. And then also, I think the thing that caught me the most with what he said was that he and the other players that are African-American love this country, but the country doesn't love them back, which I thought was such a striking thing to say.
0: Yeah, that was a very heavy moment when Doc Doc spoke up that way, and he's a, he's a, he's always been very you know, thoughtful thought among the most thoughtful coaches I think that the that in, in any sport, and here's a guy you know Doc Rivers. A, there was an arson at his home. I think that uh, there had been some thought uh, that 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 was somehow racially motivated, uh, and his family had been targeted living in a predominantly white neighborhood. You know he can speak. Yeah, his father's a, his father was a police officer. Um, he, he, yeah, he, again, he speaks to the, the, the fears that we all have, the, the uh, sort of sense of double, double, double consciousness, double awareness, where you can never really, it's, uh, you know, you just want to be a human being, uh, you know, you just want to live and not have to think about all this stuff. But If you're African-American in this country, particularly, I think it's a particular burden for us, you can't really go anywhere and not sort of be of two minds, be aware of your blackness and aware that other people are aware of your blackness (laughs) the second that you walk into a cafe or a restaurant and you're being sized up and you're being stereotyped and people are trying to figure you out. And, you know, sometimes it's in a positive way, but uh, no matter what, it's like... You're just you're sort of an object in a way, and yet at the same time you're trying to live your life and you want to be a full human being and you want to be seen as more than a symbol and more than just your skin color and and yet the you know it's just represents the internal struggle I mean then that you're yet you're also very like you know very proud of your color and your history and the struggle that we've been through I mean that's well that's why I have this genealogy like right next to me because I, I love tapping into that. So he he really spoke to so much of that. I mean, to hear him, you know, I think he was in tears. And
1: Yeah, it, it spoke to me. I mean, as, as a brown guy, I, uh, yeah. I know how that feels. And, yeah. you know, you just want to be a regular person.
0: But that's impossible. You know, it's just not the reality. The struggle is to, to try to hold on to that as much as possible, but then also to be aware that you know, you also always kind of have to be a little bit on your toes. I mean, I've written about this recently from where I, you know, I wrote a story after the Ahmad Arbery shooting about, you know, jogging with my son in, in, in my neighborhood in North Seattle and um, just how, you know, and something like jogging, which I, you do for health and to kind of relax and to also to in, those, in this case just to be with my, my little guy. You can never ever really fully relax. I always find... Myself running scripts in my head, uh, you know. Why is this homeowner looking at me funny? Why wait? Why did the police just go by me? Look, you know. Now I'm sort of, I'm particularly on edge when these days when I'm out jogging and I see all these big. Frankly, I mean, I'm sort of stereotyping. And I see a, like a white guy in a big white in a big like Ford Ford truck. <laughs> you know, I get kind of worried. You know, it's kind of crazy, but. Then again, it's not, given some of the things that have happened. Dylan Roof in South Carolina. I mean, just
1: any, the fact that kind of anything can happen and it's sort of adds to the anxiety. (sighs) Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, the other thing that I've been taken about is, is how the WNBA, they have been really more outspoken and more active in action than the guys.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. They've tapped into uh, the great tradition of uh, female activism that goes way that goes way back. I mean, you can really spend some time like studying some of the great heroes, you know, going back decades, and many of them who've not, you know, like less less than household names, and of course, then people like Billie Jean King and the like. But the WNBA has really, you know, stood at the forefront of this really from from the beginning. They were one of the first first uh, leagues, if not the first to. To really stand up after the it was 2015 shooting, police shootings that happened in Minneapolis, where the Minneapolis Lynx team with Maya Moore and um, and several of her teammates stood up. Uh, there had been a shooting outside, just outside Minneapolis, and so they've just continued in that tradition. I think actually, you know, in the, in what they're calling the Wubble, um, there right. the, the bubble that's in yeah. uh, Bradenton, Florida, where they're playing their games. You know, early on um they started before the nba and they they uh, did you know they did kneeling during the anthem they walked out during you know they were, they were just speaking out very very forcefully and and I, and I think too they were they've also been inspired by maya moore who had been who was one of the great stars of the game who walked away from from basketball in in her prime it's like steph curry uh, if steph curry had decided to leave about the nba and when he was 29 30 she's at that same level in her game and she did that partly to support a convict um, in um, missouri maximum state prison who she uh she believed and was was convinced had been wrongly convicted and i was lucky enough to you know be be one of the leaders if not the leader on, on that story and spent a lot of time with maya and it turns out that the great thing was that she helped uh she helped the the, the inmate uh, Jonathan Irons get out of prison just a couple of months ago. Uh, he was released early uh, on, on appeal, and judges finally took a took a look at the case. And after a lot of attention it had been, you know, put on it.
1: What do you see? Um, what's ahead here?
0: I think this movement is just going to continue to pick up steam. I mean. It, just like just like with an individual you know or any of us when we start feeling our own power and start feeling a sense of confidence you know that's exactly what what's happening with the players they're they're understanding their power in all new ways and there's going to be a whole new generation of athletes that come in that are watching this that are now in high school and college and they're going to just feel like well how do i take it one step further and you know uh we've already seen i mean out of this week we it appears this week that they you know, one of the things that the NBA players have done is, you know, they forced the governors, the own, slash owners, to to the table, and have basically uh, the, the the league and the and ownership is now agreeing to support many of the player initiatives in all new ways. And that includes voting rights and opening stadiums and arenas for to, to, to make them polling polling areas and uh, establishing much much deeper connections with communities. I think we're just going to see more and more and more of that. It'll be interesting to see how much it translates to sports like the NFL and into and baseball as well.
1: So what's ahead for you now? Uh, the, you have been writing for The Times now and really focusing on sports. Uh, those kind of stories like you mentioned with Maya Moore and others that are kind of those feature types uh, but are fascinating stories. Uh, the column starts it started already so uh, is that going to be a weekly thing or what's the deal
0: yeah well the plan is for it to be basically weekly we haven't settled on whether it'll be just on on a particular day but also to be ready to you know weigh in any time during the week when things happen we're you know at the times we cover sports a little bit differently we're in that i think we don't want to be overly reactive and we want to be very thoughtful it's not it's important i think to you know, lay a flag in the ground on important stories, but I won't be chasing every little thing. Um, uh, It's a, so I I think we've got to be smart about it. Um, And we can step back and breathe a little bit. In other words, compared to maybe some other outlets or certainly like the local papers, like the times, Seattle times, which does a great job locally. But I, um, my, it's also a national audience and even international, so I'll be writing about things all over the country and issues wherever I can find them and a mix of you know serious and hard-hitting stories. And maybe sometimes I'll try to be a little light and maybe sometimes I'll try to throw in a little miniature feature. And we'll just kind of see how it goes. But it's clearly a platform that I'm really proud to have and I, I'm hopeful you know hopefully I'll serve it well and right now I the I'm the, I'm also the I'm also the only columnist at, at the paper the only kind of generalist columnist and you know in 2005 or 6 there were four or five you know this is just reflective of the way things have changed in the business and it used to be much more new york centric so Nash now clearly I mean, the paper is very much now into it sees itself as a national and, and international you know, news, news organization and more so even than, than just, you know, there's just less emphasis on New York, but I'm still going to pay attention to New York and I'll be heading back there on decent occasion to write about New York stuff.
1: Hey, you get to live in your hometown. I'm a lucky guy
0: that way, yeah. <laughs> After many, many years away I, little, I, I came back and I got to know you, actually, many years ago in the mid-90s when I came back for a couple of years. But I had been away. I grew up here in in Seattle and graduated from Roosevelt High School in 1984 Uh, in a a different era, a very different Seattle. Um, Went to South Shore Middle School down on the south end and uh, then I left for California And was basically gone, other than those two years. I was basically gone until 2015, so
1: very happy to be back. L.A. Times, ESPN, New York Times. Hey, that's a pretty good resume there, my man. Don't forget Baltimore Sun, KCTS, and Como. That's right. Where
0: I was briefly, yeah. (laughs) NKGO Radio in San Francisco. There's been a lot of stops. (laughs) <laughs> got
1: to say i'm I'm really uh, proud of you, and I look forward to reading your stuff because it's 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 really good you You are very good, my man. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time and let's stay in touch and maybe hook up again here and have some conversations. Kurt streeter, thank you so much. Take care Well again, thanks to Kurt Streeter for uh, talking to us and since we uh, recorded that interview. Uh, there has been action in the NBA. They are resuming the playoffs. Uh, the games are starting up again, but that doesn't mean that they're going to, the players are going to back off any actions that they might take uh, if there's any more incidents. But they're also in the NBA working with management to to try to uh, get their voices out there again more on the issues of racial justice. They're also going to work in the communities to provide an opportunity for people to come in and sign up to register to vote, as well as have a place to come and vote in the various cities where you still have to walk in and vote, unlike uh, here in Washington State where we do mail-in balloting. Yeah, let's
2: uh, go ahead and hope that this is something that is a good start and that hopefully continues and reverberates throughout the sports world.
1: I think the one thing that we know for sure is if there is another incident, and most likely there will be, the pro sports world will react, and they are going to make their voices heard. Now, I just want to mention that Kurt Streeter's Sport of the Times column Titled with Walkouts, A New High Bar for Protests in the Sports World is Set. And it was published in the August 27th edition of the New York Times. Again, thanks to Kurt for joining us. And you can find his column in the New York Times.
2: Life on the Margins is a production of the South Seattle Emerald.
1: Our music is courtesy of Seattle artist Dre's. Our producers are Jeff Shaw and Hans Anderson. Stay safe, be well, wear a mask, and wash your hands. We'll talk more later.
2: I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play Flyers Up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcus, and eventually the Kenyans. Didn't have much, but thankful for all we was giving. It was our hood until we did see crept in. And the blacks went naked And gentrification. Came golf for Franklin. Robberies ain't even the same. Mark my words, it gonna be white boys all on the team. I don't reminisce when I drive through this hood. I feel pain. I ain't proud of these.